Yeah, great yeah. questions. Superb. Um, okay, good morning and welcome back to the Bishy P podcast. Uh, today, today we're absolutely delighted to say we're joined by Gregor Townsend, the head coach of the Scottish rugby team. Good morning, Gregor. Good morning, guys. And as ever, we're joined by uh, Mr McHugh and Mr Johnson, looking very happy there with your grey hoodies on. Obviously, I didn't get the memo. Yeah, talk to me, Hellfinger. And if Tommy Hellfinger wants to sponsor us, then get in touch. Uh-huh. Another new sponsor of this podcast, by the way. You're the only one missing out, Grant. He's got a big nag deal, though. Um, So just major thank you for joining this morning, Gregor. Um, If you wouldn't mind just kicking us off by introducing yourself. I can't believe you've asked that question. (laughs) Uh, I'll just check Wikipedia. Look, I'm I'm Gregor Townsend. I'm currently the, the head coach of the Scotland rugby team. I've been on my job three years, uh, just uh, three years in a week. And uh, prior to that, I was head coach of Glasgow Warriors for five years. Um, before that, I was assistant coach for for Scotland. And back uh, back many years ago, I played for Scotland, played club yeah. rugby around the world as well. So former player, now a coach. Superb. Um, just a kind of side question before we look at your school career. How's lockdown been for you? What have you been getting up to? Yeah, look, it's, it's actually been uh, reasonably enjoyable. I think um, I always look to, to, to find the positives in, a, in any situation. And yeah. for, for us as a coaching group, we've, we've taken this opportunity to learn from other coaches throughout the world. Everyone that's involved in sport throughout the world has had to be on a pause. So we've had time to, to do Zoom calls and learn from various sports and other people involved in coaching and, and different organisations. Uh, from a family perspective, it's just been great to, to spend more time with them. We don't often get to do that when you're, you're a coach. Yeah. I've got two boys now, teenagers, so they're probably sick of the sight of me around, but it has been a good period seeing them more. Yeah. Right. Super. Um, and tell us a bit about your school kind of journey. Uh, where did you go to school and did you stay on till fourth year, fifth year, sixth year? Yeah, so I was um, brought up in uh, the Scottish Borders, so um, in a town called Gal, in the town called St Peter's. I went to Galshiels Academy, yeah. uh, went right through to the end of sixth year. So um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of really happy memories from that time. Um, yeah. Most of them playing sport, but uh, the uh, I did get my head down and study, and then managed to to get onto university after school. Superb. Uh, and I, I suppose this might be a bit of a silly question, but what was your favourite subject at school? And was there kind of any influential role models for you? Uh, maybe a particular teacher or a, a former pupil? Yeah, there are probably two subjects. Um, I'll leave the obvious one to the end, uh, PE. Yeah. But, uh, I really enjoyed history. I got more into that. And um, that's what I ended up studying at university, history and politics. So I got a love for that at school. But PE was um, the most enjoyable uh, subject. Uh, we did rugby at PE, we did various other sports, and we were all inspired by a great um, teacher who became a, a coach and a friend since uh, left school. His name was Rob Moffat, yeah. uh, just a great man. He'd always have time for you, um, and time for anybody, regardless of ability. Uh, if you wanted to do extra training in the lunchtime break or speak to him about any issue he'd be there for you so uh 
no, he um, he certainly got me, uh, helped my rugby career a lot, uh, got me interested in going into teaching. If, if rugby hadn't became a professional sport, I think that's what I, I would have tried to do. Superb. You kind of touched upon the kind of extra training and stuff. Were you involved in any extracurricular clubs at uh, school? Uh, probably not Not really. My, my, I, I was quite busy um, with rugby, especially as I got through school. Um, I remember when I was 15, <clears throat> I played three games in a weekend. So I played for the school team in the morning, the Saturday morning. So that was yep. under 18s. Then I played for the youth team in the afternoon, under 18s. And then not every weekend, but every second weekend with an under-16 game on a Sunday. So right. I kept me quite busy. I was in the, the BBE's Boys Brigade. Uh, Good man. Good man. And rugby, rugby training on Tuesday, Thursday nights with clubs. So no, no time for anything else. Yeah. Good. Superb. Busy man then. Yeah, I loved it yeah. though. I remember, I remember yeah. a, Sunday, a Sunday evening after those three games, I was lying in a bath and feeling sore all over, but then just replaying the games and the fun that we had over the weekend. So, happy yeah. memories. Brilliant. Gregor, can you tell us a wee bit about your, your journey into rugby? So, maybe your, your kind of early days. Yeah, well, rugby is um, the main sport down here in the Borders. So, my, uh, my dad had played and we, uh, Sunday afternoons when you were five, six year old, you got into mini rugby, went to the local park and just started playing. I watched. Uh, I used to watch my club team gala play. Mm. I used to love after the games where they let all the kids onto the pitch, and you would play games with with your older brother. And kids are about five years older, and you you learned quickly to to pass the ball or, or sidestep away from these big guys. Um, so that that got you that like that's that's all you did at the weekends. There was no uh, distractions with computer games or Xboxes or many TV channels. So it was. A big focus point of the community was getting down to the rugby club and, and getting out there and playing. I did love football as well. Um, and we uh, we didn't get much football at school. Uh, we When I was growing up, it was the um, years of the teacher strike. So a lot of teachers weren't allowed to help out um, to do extra work. But I, I joined a, a football club up in Edinburgh Boys Club. So I had a couple of years with them when I was 12, 13 year old. And then I had to make a decision around uh, choosing one rugby or, or football because football were moving from Sundays to Saturday, so uh, yeah. I chose chose rugby. Um, I think it was a good good option. Not not that um, I think I, I was I started as a striker. I remember my first year striker, and then moved on the wing, and then attacking midfielder, and then defensive midfielder by the end. So I don't know if that was slowly but surely worked your way back then. Didn't yeah, you? <laughs> whether I was getting bigger and they thought I was a good defender or my attacking skills had. I disappeared, but I enjoyed that, and I, I do. I'm a massive believer in multi-sport. Uh, will will help you not just um and enjoy more sports and get the the love for different sports, but if you do focus on one sport later on, the ability to have played um, football, which you have to beat people and pass and move, uh, has really helped my rugby. I did athletics and golf as well. All that hand-eye coordination will, will help you when you you do focus on one sport. Definitely. Yeah, see just see just on the topic of the borders, right? This is a personal personal question. <coughs> my, my uncle is from a, a wee town called Inalithan. Yes, not well. And his I, I, I said to him we were interviewing you today, and he said, "I says as a bra lad, you will know what you mean. 
How does he feel about not actually playing for the Broncos other than amateur status and the border Rivieras don't count? I don't know if you know it about that. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. As a bro lad, uh, sorry, how does it feel not uh, about not actually playing for the bro lads other than amateur status and the border Rivieras? Then he can. The border reavers, like it. The border reavers sounds like this exotic French team. I don't think share anybody answered his phone this morning. Yeah, well, look, all all the towns and the, and the borders and the villages um, have, have a rugby team. Um, actually, Anderlethen's got a really good football team, uh, Villa Lethen. But yeah. there was there was big rivalries. Um, and then we did have a professional team aboard the Rivieras, the Border Rivers. Yeah, that's the Tony's literacy skills again. <laughs> they came together, and unfortunately, um, they no longer exist. My last ever game of rugby um, as a professional was for the Border Rivers um, back in 2007. And uh, because of money and financial issues, uh, there's no, no longer a professional team in the Borders. But so that was sad that we couldn't have that team, but um, yeah. rugby's still massive down here. So uh, I was at the Boxing Day game, Gala Melrose. So there was about 3,000 at the game that day this year, which was great to see. We've got the Scotland captain just now, Stuart Hogg, who's from, from the town of Hoyk, which is 15,000 people. And one of, one of the breakthrough players of last year, Darcy Graham, uh, was also from, from Hoyk. So... Still players are, um, are coming through from this area and there's still a real love for the game here. Excellent. Like I say, um, in terms of, you spoke a wee bit about your journey into rugby. So did you go from school straight into professional rugby or did you have any jobs in between or did you study in between um, school and, and your professional career? Yeah, well, I, I believe I was part of the lucky generation that... Um, Rugby wasn't professional when I when I first stepped up to senior level, so I got to enjoy five years of amateur rugby, and just doing something um, that you loved at the weekend, and having to make money in di- in different ways um, leading up to that. So I was at u- university for four years, and I'd do summer jobs, plaster as labourer, gardener. I've still got a bad back from those experiences. Uh, but two, two of my summers, um, I went out to Australia and played club rugby out there. I had three months of a break. Uh, I was a groundsman for the, the first time I went and played for a club in Sydney called Moringa. And uh, the second time, because I was graduating in, in history and politics, they got me a job as a political researcher. So to work in, uh, in Sydney. And we, we stayed in a place called Manly which is a beautiful place. And we used to get um, uh, a ferry across into Sydney, going in between the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, going up to work as a political researcher. And I thought, this, this is great. And then playing rugby the weekend. But like, rugby became professional soon after that, I think 95, 96. And uh, look, that, that's been a great experience too, that you, you're able to do what you love every day and, and train full time and the game, the game's grown, uh, the crowds have got bigger. So... No, I was I was always keeping busy, always um trying to fit in work and fit in more rugby experiences during that time when it was amateur. Yeah, and do you think these jobs that you had or, or the studying that you did, do you think that helped you develop skills which have helped you to get the success that you have today? Yeah, I believe so. I think um, 
going to Australia really um, uh, ignited my passion for for learning. Yeah, and that that's what I believe in my my coaching journey. That I'm, I'm miles away from the the coach I can be. So trying to learn from the best coaches out there, read books um, during this period uh, of quarantine, um, speaking to coaches around the world, and and always trying to find out what the better way is and how you can improve. So I think Australia opened that up to me. That uh, getting out there and seeing that there's a different way of coaching the game, obviously doing my, my work as a politi- political researcher, um, maybe put me off politics. Seeing what life was like um, in, a, in a different job. So, no, yeah, I certainly think getting out there to have new experiences. Not all of them are going <clears> to <throat> get you to do exactly what you've experienced, but it'll, it'll help you form opinions and, and learn and, and get better for longer. Gregor, just in, on that point about the kind of the coaching experiences you're, you're getting over this time, I, I read somewhere that you, you managed to meet Pep Guardiola and Roberto Martinez. Could you tell us like what that was like, what that experience was like? Yeah, well, Roberto Martinez has, has been excellent. Um, I went out to Brussels and had a day with him. Uh, he's, he's a Belgian manager just now and uh, he's done a fantastic job. But I really found the relevance on on his role. He'd moved from club rugby to international coaching. Sorry, club football to international coaching. That's that's what I was doing from rugby. And uh, him and his coaching team. A few weeks ago, we we had a Zoom call. Sean Maloney was in the call as well. Um, so some good Scottish links, and they they told us a lot about what what they found uh, has worked for them. So that was really good. Pep. Um, Pep was an interesting one because I'd, I'd gone out to Barcelona a number of years ago when Pep had he'd left the year before and had two or three days just seeing the, what Barcelona do at training, the, the whole culture. It was, it was a great experience. And Pep was at Bayern Munich at the time. And through a, a mutual contact, actually, a Scottish guy that lives in Barcelona, uh, I, I kept saying to him, I'd love to, to meet Pep. Um, I'm reading his book just now. What, what a great coach. What an inspiration he is. And uh, he said, oh, I th- I'll try my best. I reckon I could get you set up at uh, Bayern Munich. So anyway, it never, never happened. And um, I must have got a new phone about six months later and I downloaded this thing called WhatsApp. You might, you might have heard of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> got WhatsApp on my phone. I had all these messages from uh, my contact in Barcelona saying, yeah, you're ready to go, Pips. Keen to get you into Bayern Munich. And I hadn't realised that it had all happened. So... I thought I've missed that opportunity to go and meet him and see him coach. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, through another contact, I managed to get down to Manchester City. And look, I only had half an hour chat with him, but I had two days seeing what what they did, getting a tour around the facility, going to a game, seeing him coaching. But the half hour chat was inspirational, just to see his passion about coaching. He, he's probably the best manager in the world. He works with the the highest paid players in the world, but his passion about the process of coaching. He was out there when it was, it was sleep, it was freezing. And they'd been playing this game for 20, 25 minutes. And he was still coming in and helping guys move their body shape a little bit to the right. That'll help them um, pass the ball and be opened up for a, for an opportunity. So that was great to see the, the best in the world, uh, loving what they do and the, the players really responding to that. Was that something that you've been able to replicate? 
Yeah, look, I think every time you go to to meet meet someone, you you get you get something out of it, um, and it could be something that is stored for for the longer term for certain situations. It could be just a real um, motivational boost that you go. This is why I love coaching. Yeah, um, you can see when you see others loving it, and you go, "This is takes me back to why I, why I got into this in the first place." Absolutely. So it's just continue, just building up. Um, information that will probably be in the subconscious for when a, when a, a situation arrives, you go, right, I've heard of, I've seen or experienced this before, maybe this is the right thing to do. Yeah. All right. Is it, that, is it over to me now for my question? Yeah. Oh, you must be cute. Okay, so we're going to move on to um, the professional career. Um, obviously, you've had a, a very successful career, both playing and um, coaching. But what has your career journey been like? Obviously, you touched on it earlier, but I'm a slant. Yeah, it's um, it's been a lot of travelling. Uh, so from my playing career, I played for my club team, uh, Magala, uh, in amateur era, and had those two experiences in off-season out in Australia and Sydney, which were great. But then when the, the game went professional, um, the, the decision was made in... in Britain not to to pay players for a year. So France and South Africa and New Zealand, when it went professional, started paying players. But uh, we um, in the UK, we said oh, we'll pause for a year. So at the same time, I had an opportunity to go to, to a team in England called Northampton, but uh, it was still amateur. So I, would, I got a job in London and uh, I worked, got, got an early train into London from Northampton, worked during the day and trained in there. Uh, uh, on Tuesday, Thursday evenings and played at the weekend. So that was my first experience of playing club rugby outside of uh, Scotland um, for a longer period. So I stayed three years with Northampton. The game that well, we went professional the following year and we went full-time. And I'd, I'd, in my experience of Australia, it really um, got me going, got me thinking, right, um, different environments have really helped you improve and play. And I got contacted to would I be interested in playing in France? And I thought that'd be a real good challenge, um, learn a new language, play out my comfort zone out there. So I ended up uh, playing for a team called Brieve, uh, who were European champions a year before. Uh, and it was really challenging to begin with, not, not speaking the language. There was only other one foreigner or non-French player in the squad. He was Argentinian. And then it was tough rugby. But um, I, I ended up enjoying it. and and coming coming through those challenges. I ended up five years in France uh, and then had a season in South Africa as well. So I think that I think my, my career was always about getting new challenges, learning from other environments and it had really been the spark in, in that experience in Australia that made me do that. My coaching career has been uh, really enjoyable um, for most of it. I think early on I, I certainly didn't enjoy the the, the move to coaching, I missed playing. Um, I didn't feel I was very good as a coach. I was assistant coach, not getting to coach that much. But since since my move to head coach and being at Glasgow Warriors, I've really enjoyed it. And it's all been in one country. So very different to my playing career, which was all around the world. Um, I've coached uh, in Scotland for the last 10 years now. What do, you, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the playing or the coaching? Well... I definitely preferred the playing when I was playing, but um, knowing my body now, it's yeah. uh, when I think about 
having to make a few tackles or um, do the fitness training that players would do. So I enjoy watching them play, but uh, not, nothing beats playing. Like the, the satisfaction you get um, setting a change room with your teammates at the end of a game, you can't, you can't um, replicate that in coaching. Um, you, as a coach, you're there to, to help the players play at their best. And you do share in their joy, but you, you've not put the physical effort into that um, experience. Uh, so, no, playing was great. Um, and maybe playing as well, you know that you're so lucky that you've got this window where your body can play for a, for a period. So you've got to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you're talking about your experience in various different countries. Is there a big difference in terms of how different nations approach rugby, maybe in a preparation or a playing style? that you noticed from actually being involved? Yeah, I think that the biggest difference was between um, France uh, and French rugby and pretty much every country in the world. <laughs> they were <laughs> unique. Uh, they, uh, just the way we trained. So back um, when, I, when I played late 90s, early 2000s, uh, a lot of our training sessions were really focused around um, uh, technique and drills. And we would go to where when I played for a Brieve in France, we'd just play games the whole time. And we'd play a full-on 15v15 game on a Wednesday. So they, they, in France, you played lots of games during the season. Then you would play in this training game on a Wednesday night. And initially I thought, oh, this, this isn't real coaching. Anybody can do this. And I realized I was wrong. I realized that playing games and game-based training yeah. uh, prepares you best for playing games at, um, at the weekend. Now there's going to be there's going to be technical focus within that, so there's not just a play a game and see what see what happens. Uh, so I think I think now coaching has has merged the two. Um, I'm much I'm a real believer in game based um, training, so that that was a really good experience. The the negative experience of French rugby was the violence that you would often get um, on the field uh, and also in the change rooms before a game. So our, our coach was was partial to a headbutt or two to try and get the players uh, psyched up. So <laughs> I had to avoid that. And I certainly don't coach like that now. Did it work? Did a headbutt, does that get you up for a game or does it put you down for a game? It definitely puts you down. Well, <laughs> well, well, in rugby, you got forwards and backs. So maybe some of the forwards loved it, but our backs yeah. certainly didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Gregor, obviously, I've got a list of things here from... Um, Cap, two caps for the British and Irish Lions, Five Nations Championships, Famous Night in Paris in 1995. A, a, a number of highlights, but if you were to select a couple, what would you say your highlights have been of your professional career? Yeah, look, I, th- I think there's a, there's a couple. I think when you, when you grow up, you, you want to play for your country. Um, I, I remember when I had a paper round, paper round when I was uh, what, 12, 13 year old, I used to be thinking about playing for Scotland. I'd go to watch Scotland games here. So when you win your first cap and and playing at a BT Murrayfield, as it's it's known as now, was was amazing. Um, to have See, those you experiences. Delivered the papers. See me deliver the papers. Did you li- deliver the papers? <laughs> uh, no. You <laughs> <laughs> know, it would help my passing. So I'm like, playing for your country. Nothing beats that. And and obviously the best. Memories you have with playing for countries when you you have great teammates, you have enjoyable experiences, and and, and you win. And uh, the Five Nations in 1999 was 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 brilliant. Uh, it was the last Five Nations tournament. Italy were coming in the following year. 
and we managed to have a, a great season. We won a, um, a memorable game in Paris. We scored five tries in the first half. We'd only won there once in the last 30 years, so it was it was a real surprise and just one, one game when everything clicked. Yeah. And we thought, well, that's brilliant. What, what a season we've had. And we're going to finish second in the championship because there was one game remaining and it was Wales against England the following day. And England had been, had been very good. We just missed uh, a chance to beat them. We lost by a couple of points down at Twickenham, but we thought they'll, they'll beat Wales. But it's been great. We finished second. And then we watched that game the next day, a bit hungover. Um, and uh, amazingly, Wales won in the last minute, which meant that we were going to be the Five Nations champions, which uh, no one can take away from us now because we're now into the Six Nations. So that, that was great. And, and the playing for the British and Irish Lions was, was a unique experience too. That, that, that comes around once every four years. You don't think there'll ever be anything above playing for your country. But in rugby, we have this team that, that is above playing for your country. Um, you play for, play alongside the Welsh, the English and the Irish. And you take on the best teams in the world. You take on South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. And we were taking on the world champions back in 1997, uh, the South Africans. And we, might, we managed to beat them to um, win the first two tests. So that, that was a, a great moment. And the longer you, you get removed from it and as time goes on, you realise how lucky you were to be involved in a, in a tour like yeah. that. What was that experience like, Greta? Because I can, I can only imagine, I remember when I was younger and you go to Blackpool for like, football tournaments. But you get guys like, who are coming from all these different teams, but yet they need to... By the way, I can't believe he's just compared that to... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's two things. Obviously, the, the first thing is you, you're getting brand new teammates. There's only four Scots in that, that touring party, so the majority of the, your teammates you, you didn't really know. And also, you, you didn't have a, a great like for them. You, you just played against them in the Five Nations. You wanted to kick their head in. And yeah. so that... The, the initial stage of that tour was, it was getting to know people and and then quickly be trying to be a, a really good teammate for them and work as hard as a team as possible. And you, you have a, you have little time to do that. You're, you're straight on a plane and then you're playing a, a team that's been waiting 12 years for you. So it's 12 years for these teams, um, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, waiting for the Lions tour. And South Africa are, are big men, so we, we had to form that those bonds really quickly. Mm-hmm. And you, you you keep them for life. Like the players and, and friends that you you met on that, that tour, what's that now, 30, 23 years ago? Um, and you, you remain friends, and you, the experiences you share in that six, seven-week period last for the, for the rest of your life. Like, you, you mentioned like teams like um, South Africa there and, and New Zealand. Is there any, this is just a question that interests me, is there any particular opponents, individuals who you thought, I'm quite scared going into this game, that this guy could absolutely nail me here or really hurt me? Any scary opponents? Yeah, I've got quite a long list. Every single one I'll pick one. Um, <laughs> mainly there were anybody over about 18 stone that was played for the opposition in France or South Africa. Some big men that used to come up against, but there's one player who was a phenomenal player, um, and also physically just 
a, a very different player, like a huge man, but really quick. His name was Jonah Lomu. Yeah. And he, uh, he played for the All Blacks, burst into the scene in 1995 World Cup, scored four tries against England in the World Cup semi-final. No, no one could tackle him. He, he ran the 100 and under 11 seconds. He was six foot four. He was 19 stone, pure muscle. And at that stage, he just he needed two people to bring him down. So uh, I got to play against him, I think, five or six times in his career. He's sadly no longer with us. Um, he had, uh, he had kidney problems during uh, during his career, so it's amazing to think how well he did play um, uh, having those challenges. Yeah. But uh, it was it was okay because he played on the wing and uh, I played at, at standoff. Um, so normally you don't have to tackle the wingers too often. But there was one game where uh, if you picture a scrum in the middle of the field and I'm on the left-hand side, opposite um, Andrew Mertens, who's a standoff for uh, the New Zealand team. And uh, just as we were settling down to to get into the scrum, he swaps with the person on his left, Jonah Lomu. So he's now opposite me. And as that's happening, my person on my right, Craig Joyner, our right winger, uh, said, oh, they've swapped. Do you want to swap, Gregor? So that was a real big decision I had to make there. So... <laughs> Call it bravery, I call it stupidity. I said, no, no, I've, I've got this, I've got this. So I'm now facing the six foot five guy who's, who's starting to smile as he's looking at me. And I have I saw them do this play once before where basically he was going to get the ball off the scrum half and just run straight at the standoff, which was me, which tended to be the position where you didn't have to tackle much back in that day. So I um I thought right what I'm what I'm going to do here so I'll, there's only one thing for it is get offside and try, try and stop him before he actually starts running. So I, I did that quite well. Just when the ball was put in the scrum, I started running, and uh, I was going to get penalised for being offside, but I thought it's, it's worth it. Um, <laughs> and as I um started running, the ball was actually struck quite quickly at the scrum, and as he got the pass from the scrum half, Justin Marshall. I was about just a, about a yard away from him, but I'd forgot about Plan B. What what I do when I get close to him? So I was very I was very upright. I was sprinting here, going, "Yeah, this will work." And he caught the ball in one hand, didn't didn't take a step, but his other hand, his massive handoff came right on my forehead. I went back on my backside, and then he started running. He uh, he bumped our fullback, and then three people jumped on his back. Managed to drag him down about a yard before the try line, and then they scored on the next uh, phase. I'm still in the halfway line, lying down, going, what, "What's happened here?" <laughs> Being hit by a car. And, uh, so that was that was embarrassing. Um, he was a, you tried to avoid him as well in the hacker before the New Zealand have a hacker. Yeah, yeah. you have to face before a game, and you tried to pick the the small white guy in the team, um, rather than look at Jonah. <laughs> um, but no, no, that was an embarrassing experience. Would you say he's probably the best player that you've, you've played with or against? Yeah, I think so. I think he he just transformed the game. Um, he was so so good with ball in hand. He physically, speed-wise, um, I don't think anybody has had, that's had the impact on, on the game like him. And, he was a great guy too. I might, we managed to have a, a couple of occasions we got together. We had the same sponsor, so he's a lovely, lovely man. And 
a, a superstar in our sport. So uh, yeah. in New Zealand, he would have been such a hero. But whenever he left New Zealand, um, people from other sports looked up to him and uh, he was great for our game. He took our game to, to a different level. Brilliant. See, obviously, we spoke about a number of highlights there, Gregor, but come, with highlights come setbacks. Have you experienced any of those in your career and, and how did you manage them? Yeah, yeah, lots lots of setbacks. I think there's there's lots of challenges that um, athletes uh, go through, no matter what sport they're in, just like there's challenges um, in everyday life where, where things don't go well for you. You've not played well. Um, you've been dropped. Uh, you've got pressures around contract. You've got criticism from from media. So th- these are things that you you have to handle and and really on why you're doing this, um, why you why you love the sport, why you love being around your teammates, and that'll drive you to to get better. There's there's been bigger setbacks too. I remember in, in 1995, so that World Cup that. When Lomo made his breakthrough, I was all set to to be playing in my first World Cup. We did a good season for Scotland. We um we were one game away from winning the Grand Slam that year, and in my last club game for for Gala, with about twenty minutes to go in the game, uh, I did my knee, um, which I didn't think anything of at the time. I thought, oh, it's just be two or three days. I'll be fine. I'll get that plane to South Africa and I'll enjoy the World Cup. But um, two or three days later, the swelling hadn't came down, got a scan. And I was told, no, I've torn my cruciate ligaments. Going to be out for a few months. So missing that was a real blow. So in- injuries tend to be the the tough time for players. Not not the actual injury you get at a time, but the time that you have out and see the team moving on without you. The mundane elements of having to go the, through the rehab. But it's, it's part and parcel of probably all sports, but especially our sports, there's, there's a lot of injuries in our game. Yeah. Okay, so the next question is, I, I, can I more positive note, but what is the best part about being involved with rugby? Well, I'm I'm biased, but I believe it's the best team sport out there. Uh, you've got a lot of players in your team, so it's 15. Uh, you have to really work as a team as well. So you're defending, attacking together. Um, we have a lot of fun in rugby, as I'm sure every sport does. But those experiences are the best part of it. Uh, you you win and lose together. You're in the changing room together. You're you're enjoying away trips. Um, you're enjoying reminiscing about stories. So the the team aspect um, really makes our sport. The, the there's parts that you you love um, at training, but it's mainly those those trips together that you've you've gone away, and it's all, it's just you and the team. Yeah. So you, you, you get those uh, same feelings as a coach, definitely, but uh, as players, nothing beats that. Brilliant. Greg, you'd mentioned about probably the best player that you played against, but who would you say is the best player that you've played with throughout your career? Yeah, really good question. Um, I think I've been lucky. I've played a lot with lots of really good players. Uh, I think there's one player that, that stands out as someone you always wanted as a teammate, he, he might not have had the best technical skills, but he was so tough. Uh, his name was Gary Armstrong. He was he was scrum half for Scotland when they won the Grand Slam in 1990. And he was scrum half in 1999. We won that five nations and he was our captain too. And you, you just followed him. Uh, he didn't say much before a game. 
but he put his body in the line for the team. He was niggly, he was tough. Uh, so he, he was a great guy to have as a, as a teammate. And the more the more you you reflect on your playing career and now as a coach, those are the players that make teams work. Um, it doesn't have to be the person that has the best technical skills or can do something exceptional one minute. It's the, the person that will do the tough things, that will be the glue in the team, that will put the body in the line um, and will do it whether you're up against a tough opposition, easy opposition, whether the weather's sunny or it's raining. That's just what they do and they make you follow them. Um, and then my next question is that rugby is quite well known for having some, some kind of funny or crazy initiations or pranks that happen maybe within the changing rooms. Do you get any funny stories in terms of that? Uh, yeah, it's probably less so nowadays with, um, with the, the professional game. Um, yeah. Nowadays, the players just have to get up and sing in front of uh, the group. Um, and a lot of them are really good singers. So uh, <laughs> they, they don't seem to mind it as much as we used to. We uh, back in the day that the the thing that an amateur day and it still applies a little bit um, when we can in, in professional days. When you won your first cap, you you would obviously enjoy the whole experience, and then you get your cap at the dinner after the game. You'd have to wear the cap all night. The thing you were dreading is um, the tradition in rugby was that someone from the opposition would come up with you and say congratulations on your first cap, and they'd have a drink for you, and you'd say cheers and you had to down that drink you can imagine how many um, people were keen from the opposition to come up and do that to you uh, <laughs> over a short period so my, my first cap was uh, down at Twickenham in 1993 and I thought I was coping quite well because everybody was just um, coming up with a glass of red wine and I thought I'm, I'm okay here I've lasted half an hour <laughs> but uh, my, my teammates decided um, that this wasn't going quick enough, so they swapped the um, the red wine in my glass for port, uh, and that really uh, knocked me over the edge. So it was it was an early night on my first car. Yeah, uh, I've I've got a question for you, Gregor, just about the Calcutta Cup. Um, I believe you're part of the squad that won it in two thousand. Um, how was that in terms of was that one of your kind of highlights of your career? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that game because I played in 10 Calcutta Cup games and that yeah. was only one I won. So, <laughs> there was a couple of near misses. There was a couple of big, big losses. Yeah. But uh, in, two, in 2000, um, it, was, it was a great experience for, for not, not brilliant reasons. Um, the game wasn't great. It was rare. It started snowing and yeah. then it was sleet and we were freezing. Uh, we'd lost every game that season. So on the back of winning the championship in 99, we lost um, every game, but that was the last game of the season against England. We were written off, huge underdogs. But the the, the atmosphere that day at Murrayfield was was tremendous. The way the players battled against um, against England, who were going for the, the Grand Slam, they were undefeated, was amazing to see. Uh, so that, that warmed us up. And interestingly, the year before when we were champions, it was great that the country um, got huge um, energy from that and everyone was talking about it. But the following year, we lost every game, but beat England in the last game. Yeah. I reckon it was just the same feeling throughout the country. People were going yeah. to work for a couple of weeks talking about that game and how we beat England. So 
we do, we know how what it means for for people in our country to to beat England and uh, it was great from a coaching experience two years ago when we we beat them at BT Murrayfield and yeah. what what a day that was. Greg, I see when it, it comes to those sort of big games, what what sort of coaching approach do you take? Do you sort of let the on a occasion against England, are you a more inspirational, motivational person, or do you leave that to the players themselves to manage the occasion? Yeah, look, I, I love um, game day. So the the, the, the Friday and into Saturday are my two, two favourite days of um, the week in terms of, of what we do coaching. That's when we give the game plan to the players. The players run the session the day before the game. Uh, we, we call it team run. A lot of teams all call it captain's run. And then the day of the game really is about it's about um, transferring belief um, that we have in our players over to them. It's yeah. Taking away any anxiety, trying to be relaxed, um, saying to them, "Can't wait to see you play." And on certain days, you you might see a, a little bit of complacency, and you just want to make sure that the players are focused. But that doesn't tend to happen much with with playing for the national team the players are usually very pumped up and when they play England they know when they arrive at the stadium the crowd are going to be going crazy so it's just maybe taking them down a level saying let's let's enjoy this let's let's put what we've done during the weekend to 80 minutes and we can't wait to see you play and then genuinely I feel that I, I, I love the game day I, I can't wait to see what either the game's going to unfold the atmosphere uh, the games that we we coach in are, are all the tremendous, and you feel privileged to be there, so you you enjoy it. Um, straight after game game day is not so enjoyable, especially uh, when you've got to face the media and you've maybe not played as well. And all you're thinking, in the coach from a coaching perspective, is right. How do we do next week? What's the team going to be selected? What do we have to do to improve? But it's a process that you love again because you know by the end of that week you'll be playing the game. Mm-hmm. Is that what yeah, it, I can only imagine what it feels like, but how does it feel as a player and a coach when you hear that national anthem and the stadium is full? It must be incredible. That's amazing. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have been at, at BT Murrayfield, but the last last few years, they've um, they've done a brilliant thing with the anthem where you, you the the first verse has got the pipes and back in the background, and then they they kill the music. So it's just the 67,000 um, singing along with you and it makes the, the hairs go up in the back of your neck. And I, I love it, standing in the, the coaching box, watching our players, but I always look over to the opposition and you start to hear them think, oh, oh. here we go. Not just 15 here. So it's it's great. And it, as a player, it was, it was brilliant. Um, it got you pumped up. There's nothing better than sing your anthem before a game and you're just hoping that you would have an action early on in the game where you got your hands on the ball or, or got to make a tackle just to get yeah. you into the game as quickly as possible. Yeah. yeah you mentioned the, the media there. Do you think that's one of the, the most challenging aspects as, as a coach in, in this sort of day and age, having to manage the media and social media at the same time? Yeah. Uh, I suppose it is. I think you know it's it's part of your job, and and like the media can be positive too. You know, like when when you've had a victory, you you obviously want them to be talking about it, to get more people inspired to come and watch your games, and and create a real positivity about the the sport and the team. And when things don't go as well, you've got to explain it and say what 
why you think things didn't go as well and, and what you're going to do to improve it. So it's, it's part of the job. And I, I don't see it as challenging as, as telling the player, look, you're, you're, con- you're not going to be um, getting contracted next year or you're not selected this, this week, even though you've, you've trained really well. Those, those are the tougher aspects. Um, or seeing a player who has just got injured in training and is missing a, a game for his country. Those, those are much tougher than, than, than speaking to the media. Yeah. Excellent. Um, would you have any advice for any kind of aspiring rugby players or just anybody kind of generally athlete-wise? Yeah, look, I think any, anybody that's interested in sport is if I find a sport that, that you love um, and it might not be the first one you do. It might, it might be another sport. It might, be, it, might, it might be an individual sport as well. I've talked a lot about team sports, but um, individual sports are, are great too for, for you to be dedicated and put time into something you love doing. Um, and and, and all like, there's so many sports out there that you, there will be one that you'll find joy with. Exercise is great for your mental health. Um, so getting out there and doing some exercise makes you feel better. It's, it's proven that you can, you'll get some good chemicals going in your brain. So if you're not feeling great, get yourself out there and, and do a run, play a game. Um, and you'll get a lot of joy having sharing experiences with other people. So I'd say anything around that, if you're just looking to get into sport, for, for those that are really serious, uh, you've got to do the work to, to be the best. Um, so learn from those that are, are the best in your sport. Uh, they might be already in your, in your team, or it might be someone that you see on, on video, um, work out what you can do that, it can be the best uh, that you can do, but that'll take effort. Um, nothing is achieved in life and nothing is achieved in sport without the effort that goes into to be better. But you'll get the rewards with that. Yeah. yeah just a, a personal question um, in terms of who, who would you say is the biggest influence in your career? I know you mentioned a man called Rob Moffat. Would you say it was him or was it MD else that... Yeah, probably, probably a combination of him and my, my dad. Um, so you, you think of the people throughout your care, career that cared about you the most, that were there for you to, to have conversations. Not always you're doing great. Um, my dad gave me a lot of honesty about what, what I need to do to get better, but he'd always have my interests um, at getting better. And likewise, Rob Moffat, the, the teacher and coach, um, always had my best interest at heart like he had with a number of players so there, there have been coaches and players that I've played with and been coached by that have had a big influence on my my career and, and improving but those two stand out because oh, they've been a big part of my life um, and really cared for me. Grant Scott have you got any other questions before I go to the finisher? No I think. No I think. So what are you Right, so finish on Gregor. Um, if you could choose any five dinner guests, who would they be and why? They can be empty, dead, or alive. All right. I should have maybe prepped for this, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I've read all the other questions, but I didn't read that one. Um, who would they be? Um, oh, I think uh, Kenny Daglish would be one of them. Um, yeah. A big Liverpool fan. and. Uh, I've I've met him a couple of times, um, so great just to chat, chat to and uh, get get his um, 
Chairhead stories from back in the day. Uh, so there's one. Yeah. This is going to be a slow answer. Is that <laughs> someone from someone from politics? Seeing as I studied politics, uh, so let's go. Obama. Uh, yeah. Still, both those guys are still alive. Yeah. Uh, we'll uh, have to go someone from rugby. Um, so someone from rugby that would be great chat around the dinner table. Um, who would that be? Uh, let's go Ryan Wilson. So Ryan Wilson still plays at Glasgow Warriors. Yeah. And, uh, he keeps the energy of the room going. Um, so he, he'd make it a fun dinner. How uh, many have got? Two left? Two more. Two more. Yeah. We need a bit... Um, Need some female touch in there, don't we? Um, so the boys just don't talk about old football and rugby stories. So who am I going to call for? <laughs> Can you see how I'm, I'm trying to think here? Uh, Beyonce. Beyonce would uh, be great. Um, yeah. Sing a song as well. And Jay-Z. Let's get Beyonce and Jay-Z in. And, uh, there we go. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, yeah, many thanks for joining us today, Gregor. Really appreciate it. Um, very inspirational, your stories. Um, and uh, again, thanks on behalf of the PE department for giving up your time. No problem. It's a pleasure. And well, hey, well done hey, for doing this, guys. Yeah, thanks very much. Honestly, like, when we first set out, when I first messaged on Twitter, I didn't think this would have ever happened. So, thanks very much. Yeah, massive thank you, Gregor. Been excellent. A pleasure. Hope you get back into playing, teaching, coaching soon. Yeah, anybody watching this, uh, be sure to get across to our Twitter page at Bishy PE and give us a follow as well. Thank you very much for joining us today, Gregor, again. Thank you.